This is Everything Happens. I'm Kate Bowler. If you've been listening from the beginning, you don't need this. You already know what this podcast is about. But if you're just joining me, this is a podcast about what we learn when we go through awful things. What we learn in the times when life isn't bright and shiny and picture perfect. I wanted to do this podcast because I've learned a lot going through my own horrible times since being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. After my horrible diagnosis, my parents rushed down to see me and my friend Ray Barfield, who's a pediatric oncologist at Duke University, came over. And he did something extraordinary that really helped us. But I'll tell you more about that later. First, I'd like you to meet Ray. He's a doctor and a healer and a poet and a novelist. And what I love about Ray is that he's a straight shooter. He's here with me today. Hey, Ray. Hey. So when I first met you, I only knew that you were a fancy doctor who also somehow wrote books about poetry. But when I was diagnosed with cancer, I realized pretty quickly that you were a different kind of doctor. You're a pediatric oncologist. Now, I haven't let you read my memoir yet, but do you mind if I read you a bit about what I wrote about you? Please do. Okay. I'm sitting across from my friend Ray, who's a pediatric oncologist which is to say that every day he talks to children and parents about tumors and white blood cell counts and life expectancy. He is a shepherd of little lambs who are often plucked up by cancer and led to slaughter. When I look at him, I see the dogged expression of a man who fights even though he might lose. Every day he sits down with someone's mother and father and looks them directly in the eye and says, there is hope or I'm sorry. He knows what it's like to explode the world. Did I get that right? You got that right. It's a weird thing about you, this part of who you are. What made you choose pediatric oncology? I went to, I went to medical school to be a surgeon, and I just loved it. I loved the craft. I loved everything about it. My junior year of med school... Um, I was on the trauma service, and they gave me a patient. He had jumped off a wall running away from the police and dislocated his knee, and so he ended up on the trauma service. He was 15, so they kept him on the pediatric ward. Yeah. So I would go and see him every day. And as I watched the nurses and the doctors, I thought, you know, this is how the rest of the hospital should be. And when I hit the pediatric ward... I just saw how they cared for the kids, and I thought, when I'm sick, this is where I want to be. I want to be on the pediatric ward. What was it like? Just friendlier or more human? or A lot of it was um, gentleness Hmm. because they knew that the kids were were scared, that they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that most adults who are in the hospital are scared, and they don't know what's going on. And they need to be treated gently. Well, it has this weird way of being a whole world. Because yeah. that's who you are to me, is you're someone who sees both parts of my world. You see the mm. professional, shiny, fancy stuff. And then you mm. see the part where it's just the beeping and the people moving in and out. Mm-hmm. And your ability to kind of like peek behind the window, mm-hmm. I think is, I think that's part of your magic. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I can, can see things with you is that I know you. Mm. And it's the same with my patients. You know, that, that was another thing that I noticed on the pediatric ward, uh, on the oncology ward, 
was that they, they knew each other. And the thing is, when someone comes in with the most common uh, childhood cancer, yeah. there's acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And that is a two and a half to three year treatment. Oh, and wow. so even just during the active treatment phase, we really come to know the children and families. You have to know something about a person to be able to peek into more than their biology. If you just look at the electronic medical records, you're only going to see a bunch of numbers. Mm -hmm. So those things converged. And um, there was something else on the ward that was an intangible. I might call it spiritual. The way that people were present to these patients. Yeah. I don't know how much my own fear of cancer played into my attentiveness, my mindfulness, because these weren't adults overcoming. This, these were children and their families overcoming it. And somehow that just, you know, cranked everything to a new level. Yeah. So I became open. I opened up on that ward. And when I walked off the ward to go to my next rotation, it was sort of back to business as usual. And I thought, uh-uh. Yeah. I need, I need that other thing. Well, it's funny, that image of, like, being there versus being in the business-as-usual world. Because, mm. you know, I mean, people are unlucky in a million ways. But I did feel like cancer felt like discovering a secret about the universe. And it made me feel more, like, porous, like, open to everything. And the fact that you found it, but then you cultivated it, <laughs> is kind of amazing. A little weird. Uh, it is weird. Because I think people want to, I think honestly, that's the part of life everyone's trying to skip. Yeah. Like that horrible open, cracked open to everything feeling. Yeah. I think it gives you incredible perspective, but people want that as the liminal stage. Like, thank you, I passed through. I earned perspective. <laughs> 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 like a life enhancement project. <laughs> and we're done. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and w one of the things that's, in, you know, I've become interested in um, in the ways that doctors break, uh, as a doctor who broke um, and yeah. had to rebuild. I kind of wanted to ask you about that because okay. I remember little yeah. comments. You were always very kind because I think we were talking about me and my drama at the time. But mm -hmm. you mentioned a few times that there were times when it just felt like it was too much. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking about what it's like when caring becomes, yeah, something that breaks you. Sure. You know, there, there's kind of a breaking and remodeling process that turns out just to be growth mm. and change. And I still fail. But where it came to sort of a moment that I point to was um, when I first began doing bone marrow transplants. After a couple of years of doing it and using my tools of distance and professionalism and these sorts of things, I found myself increasingly feeling isolated, mm. actually feeling more alone with the suffering that I was bearing witness to. Yeah. Uh, families were regularly saying, Ray, here, here's a seat in the front row. Have a seat. We want you here in the front row of our hardest thing. Yeah. And I would spend the majority of my time talking about biology, which is a good thing. Yeah. They want me to know some things about their biology and to help them with that. But when a patient 
would move past, you know, that last little little beacon yeah. of possibility for cure. It made less and less sense to talk about the biology. Back at the beginning, it made a whole lot of sense. Yeah, this doctor's going to cure me. You know, we came all the way to Memphis, Tennessee, to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital so that this doctor can cure me. Yeah. So it made some sense to talk about the biology. Well, as a bone marrow transplant physician treating high-risk patients, which is what we did with an experimental approach to transplant, uh, we had a 40% mortality rate. So 40% of the time, I didn't know what I was doing. 40% of the time, I didn't know the next thing to say. Mm. I had not been trained very well in pain or symptom management either, so the patients were uncomfortable. We didn't have another approach to try to cure them. Yeah. And so I didn't. I, my strategy was to awkwardly summarize the day, you know, what I saw in the labs, and then to skedaddle yeah. and move on to someplace where I could do something, right? That's a kind of abandonment. And it doesn't sit very well with a person, which I am, who cares about people, which I do. And I came to a place where I thought to myself, you know, this is the job I was made for and I'm failing. Mm. I mean, I can't do this. 40% of the time, I don't know. I'm afraid. And I'm alone. And they're afraid. And they're alone. And I don't know how to reach them. So I either need to take the advice that I've gotten my whole career and figure out that whole language of distance and professionalism and boundaries and protecting my heart and that sort of thing. And I'll just go cold. That's how I'll deal with it. That's how I'll do the long game. And there's utility to that, you know? Keeps me in the game. I know a lot about transplant. I'll cure a lot of kids, you know? I won't burn out. Um, Or I can just sort of die a thousand deaths and never figure out what it is to stay present and to pay attention and to learn and to actually be able to see the person you know, because I'm so scared myself. Was there a particular, like, kid that broke your heart? Mm, Allie. Yeah, there, there were two sort of side by side. They were friends, um, Allie and, and Emma Grace. Allie was 12 years old. Emma Grace was six years old. Aww. And they were the ones, they were the ones where I learned my own inability to um, continue to to be present and to be you know not not even a I, not even doctor I mean just to be there as a person just yeah. to show up yeah. just that to have the horrible you know? road seat to yeah. their life yeah. and death. even if I didn't know like what to do even if I didn't I just to show up they were yeah. the ones who taught me that that's what I didn't know how to do so um, we transplanted both of them for um, a disease called neuroblastoma. Um, their parents were the, don- were the donors. That, it was an experimental, again, approach to the transplant. And it, and it worked. The neuroblastoma melted away. Wow. But Allie, Allie was just wrecked by the transplant. 
And over the course of about six months, she died, and she died slowly. This is the things I did. I made myself go up there. I loved them. Yeah. I loved I loved these two girls, and I loved their families. Yeah. Um, both moms were a lot like you. Mm-hmm. They were hilarious. Uh, they were they were nosy. <laughs> they were rude. They were smart. They would they drank wine in the parent room when they weren't supposed to. <laughs> they, sound, they sound perfect. They were absolutely people who you would love, and the kids were just beautiful. It was devastating to walk up and and, and see them, but I did. I would go up almost every day. I would go up, make myself go up, and talk with them. Okay, were they both sick? So mm-hmm. Allie was sick, and they did. They just Allie got sick first. Emma Grace got sick next, oh. and Emma Grace ended up with a pneumonia that that destroyed her lungs, and and that's what she died from. And then Allie just died from complications of the transplant. So um, you're watching these two little kids deteriorate. Watched every day. them both deteriorate every day, oh. and had no idea what to do. Uh, we we would manage the intensive care unit together, the intensivists and the bone marrow transplant physicians. So. I remember one day Allie um, being down in the intensive care unit. I'm sick, just just her body disintegrating. Uh, she was on a ventilator. She was on medicines to keep her blood pressure up. Her kidneys failed, and so she had to go on dialysis, and her liver began to fail. And the way that, you know, one of the ways we follow that is her bilirubin. You know, yours is probably 1.5 or 2. I've seen your bilirubin. Yeah, you have, <laughs> I don't actually. know if I'm allowed to say that on the air, but I have seen your bilirubin. And, um, and hers was, was, was in the 30s. And I remember walking in. I would prepare myself to go into the room because I knew what her mom was going to do. You know, give me some good news. And so I was always prepared with good news. But sometimes my good news, and, and this is a very specific moment that I remember, um, was, hey, good news. Your Billy Rubin uh, dropped from 35 to 33. Yeah. You know, she's on a ventilator. She's on pressors because her cardiovascular system is failing. She's on dialysis because her kidneys are failing. Her body is falling apart, and her liver's failing. But her Billy Rubin went from 35 to 33, and I'm like, well, it's going in the right direction. So there came a point, we, we took her back up to the bone marrow transplant unit once she was off the ventilator, but she needed to stay on dialysis. And she was miserable. I, I would go in the room, um, hey, Allie, hey. Um, so they tell me that you're hurting. Yeah. Where do you hurt? Everywhere. Yeah. And this was all day, every day. If you ask her how she is, I hurt. Where do you hurt, Allie? everywhere. So one day, uh, she's getting dialysis. We're just keeping her alive. If we were to stop the dialysis, you know, she would die. I remember waking up and drinking my coffee and thinking, we cannot do this anymore. We are torturing her. We are torturing her and I resolved to talk to her mom and say we need to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it are we giving her a gift or are we just afraid to let go 
And so as I was driving in, I, because I have ADD, I'm always on empty. And so I stopped at the gas station to fill my car up with gas. And I got a phone call. And it was her mom. And so I answered, and I said, hey. And she said, Ray, we have to talk. We cannot do this anymore. Yeah. We've got to stop. So the same morning, we both came to the same conclusion. And it was a galvanizing time for me because when I went in, I had a different kind of conversation than I had ever had in my practice. And uh, Allie was too sick to participate. She was so sick. Mm. She didn't want to talk. She didn't want to see people. So her mom and I went into the parent room and both of us just bawled for yeah. 45 minutes. Aww. And made some decisions, you know? Yeah. And um, it was uh, it was devastating. Emma Grace got sick a couple of months later, and she died. And that was that that was the break. That was where I I just broke. And began to realize um, that. I would either become very unhealthy as a person um, if I stayed in it, or I would have to find a way to reassemble the pieces, but in a better way than I had been formed. You know, I lost confidence in the formation process, not in the biology, not in the medicine that we can do. That's always astonishing. But the fact that it's astonishing is what makes us ignore all the brokenness that shows up in, in, in these people, these doctors. And you know, doctors are who I know the most. Yeah. Um, a nurse could tell you about the inside of nursing experience. They seem a lot better at this than doctors. You know. Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing I always felt you were able to see clearly about me is that like doctors, I prefer binaries. I'm either mm -hmm. winning your best life now, I am shiny and climbing ladders, ladders, ladders everywhere, or I am failing. And then when I was sick, it, I mean, I just went into this weird performance mode where like on the outside, she's singing and dancing and in a reality show about a very plucky girl that has cancer mm -hmm. <laughs> and then privately, <laughs> <laughs> privately withering away. <laughs> and I mean, you were the person that helped me try to move past binaries. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, I think of it more like an intervention that you had with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, a couple things happened, and I've always wanted to ask you about it. So my parents and I were sitting outside where I spent most of my time after I was sick because everyone was grieving me, and it just took up a lot of space in the house, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People were, like, making soup for no reason. <laughs> my mom was always passing out, like, uh you know, like hospital surgical masks. <laughs> and I would spend all the rest of my time convincing people they didn't have to wear them. And um, so I would sit outside. And I was sitting outside my parents. And you came and you brought wine 
which I thought was so funny. <laughs> yeah, because I was like liver mats. <laughs> Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah, just like, and I'll never forget you like put the bottles of wine slowly over the side of the fence. So I saw the wine first, and I was like, oh, thank God, Ray is here. <laughs> and uh, you pop by, and of course, my parents are in shock, and. None of us really know. I mean, just what you were saying about um, at some point you just don't know what else to say when there's not a lot of decisions mm-hmm. to make, and there just wasn't any decision to make. Mm-hmm. And so um, you sat down, and I loved that you sat on my side with me as opposed to over there with all the healthy people. And then you said, um, I am so sorry this is happening. This is awful. And it was like the first person it, Who'd ever said that out loud? And um, I was so struck by that because um, everyone is busy managing you, yeah. and it makes you feel crazy. Did it take you a while to be that person that acknowledges the truth? Because I have found that just saying out loud, wow, this is what it is, had a real healing power to it. It took me years um, because... I mean, once again, not not to uh, not not to emphasize the point, but you know, doctors are are human too, and there's a thing about saying true stuff. Um, when I think about, for example, first telling someone about their diagnosis, yeah, I know before I open the door that the family's in the room and that they are living the last moments of a certain kind of life. Yeah, it's the great before. It is the before. It is the great before. And you are bringing the after. And that is, I am drawing a little line. Yeah. And then everything after is different. Yeah. And uh, and not win the lottery different. No. You know? No, there's no Vanna um, White. There's no. There's no. No. Teasing yeah. of the object. There is no. None <laughs> no. of that. You do bring the terrible. It is terrible. Yeah. And when you first bring a diagnosis into the room, one of the, you, you, you have a, a, a pop-off valve. You have your escape, which is, but we're really good at treating this now. Sure. We're, you know, we, we've got a. Decades of research behind this, and, and, and you, can, you can instantly go positive yeah. the moment that you, you deliver the bad news. So you can relieve yourself of the very sad thing that you just had to say. I love that idea, though, of, like, bringing the truth into the room. Because yeah. you're right. Like, it has weight and dimension to it. And yes, everybody it has, when they have these terrible conversations about anything, like, you bring it in and it takes up space. It takes up space. It absolutely takes up space. And I've learned that the if if I don't even breathe between delivering the news and moving immediately to the pop-off valve, mm-hmm. I haven't allowed this thing to be in the room. Where I learned that was from all the times that I had to go into the room when the cancer returned. Oh. And I didn't have a pop-off valve. All that was in the room was the truth that the cancer had come back. Yeah. And the answer to what do we do now, if I'm telling the truth, you know, is that we have a very different kind of conversation than we've ever had before. I'll tell you that for a long time, I would 
before I would go in to tell someone that their cancer had come back after a bone marrow transplant, which meant they had had the best we have. Yeah. I would print off phase one trials that they were eligible for, and I would have them in my hand so that when they said, well, what do we do next? I could at least say, well, there are these experimental trials. The way you talk matters. So I could say, without telling a lie, mm -hmm. there are these experimental trials. Now, I have to tell you, you know, that there's probably less than a 20% chance that you're going to respond. But we can sign you on to the trial. You're eligible. I've checked. I've looked into this. That's what I say or said. Here's what they hear. They hear, um, well, there's, there's, there are these experimental trials. Oh, the experimental trial. Yeah. Oh, you mean the thing, the silver bullet. You mean the thing that is like at the cutting edge, right? That's what they hear. Um, there's less than a 10 to 20% chance that your child will respond. Wait, wait, a 20% chance that my child's going to be cured? Yeah, yeah I'll take that. Yeah. You line up 100 people and you treat them with this and 20 of them walk out cured? You bet I'll take that. Yeah. Right? Um, so you like bring the shiny thing in your pocket? So you bring this thing in and the way that you say a thing can lead a family to hear hope and you can turn a thing that's not really the thing they're hearing into the thing they want to hear. Yeah. And it becomes another pop-off valve, which relieves me yeah. as the doctor from having to be present when just, someone like, is facing stuff. you just out of there stuff. as fast as you can. Exactly. The yeah. advice that I got about delivering bad news yeah. in my training yeah. was um, never let the family come between you and the door. Is that not the worst advice you've ever heard? Are you serious? So it's the opposite of the thing that is most needed in the moment, yeah. which is a kind of patience a willingness to be quiet long enough for the family to breathe, to cry, to gather themselves, to refocus, to give you permission to continue to talk, and to just be there. Well, that's something I took away almost immediately from you and this thing you do, which is, I think, like the ministry of presence, where like, yeah, the terrible takes up space, so then you're right. Like, you have to let something else take up space. Because when something bad happens, there's this weird frenzy to it, mm -hmm. right? Because your mind is grappling through all, and, like, really spinning through all of the terrible. But your ability to sit there until it's sort of that spinning top slows and then eventually at some point just kind of conks over. And then you're still there. Because mm -hmm. most people's... I think experience of awful news is that it's lightning. And then when they look around, there's just debris. And to be that person afterwards, I think that's the real, I mean, that's where the important conversation starts. But I think very few people probably want to be there at that moment. Yeah, that's true. Including many doctors. Well, the other bit on the doctor note that I was going to ask you about your wonderful, terrible intervention with my parents, mm -hmm. is so you say this is awful, and then they just stared at you, in my recollection, for a while mm -hmm. because they couldn't believe you'd said it. And then you said it again, this is just awful. 
Just wanted to make sure they heard it. <laughs> <laughs> and then wine was being poured. And uh, but then you said, but let me tell you what I know. We need to get to a place where we move beyond dichotomies, like beyond mm-hmm. cured and dying. And Kate has stage four cancer. And that just means that we are instead looking at getting her from one good outcome exactly. to another. And that's when I started thinking of my life more like vine to vine mm-hmm. rather than, because I had this model before where it's like my job as this professional fancy person is to have this basket and I put all my eggs in it. And then I switched <laughs> and I'll just be the egg person forever. But you helped me switch to a vine to vine because I knew I would always have to be like soaring over the deep and the yeah. terrible. But the hope is always like, all right, we pick this vine. And we do it based on what we know. Mm-hmm. And then, yep, you take a running leap. Mm-hmm. And then we and then we plan for the next vine, and we hope that one's going to be there. Exactly. But that's, I mean, that's a hard mindset to get into. So I sort of wanted to ask you about that. Like, how do you, I don't know, either in medicine or in life, like, try to move into that mental space beyond dichotomies? So as a doctor, it depends on where where we're at and so if I have a kid who comes in who's older than one and less than 10 who has acute lymphoblastic leukemia with a white blood cell count less than 50,000 this is most of them we're approaching a 90% cure rate wow um when people hear cancer they immediately think death they think I am going to die Mm -hmm. that's just a reaction and cancer has a special something in yeah. our culture yeah you know the i mean cardiac disease is the number one killer not cancer but cancer has this mythic but that's like, just for surprised men in their 50s <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so you know with them um right, there's a really big vine they're going to swing on <laughs> and the likelihood is that yeah. it's going to get them to the other side one big vine and you're done you know and then there are are like in our conversation where you were at, there are a lot of things that are being developed now that are astonishingly promising, also that have not been tested for 15 or 20 years. Yeah. And so they're new enough that we don't know what the true thing to say is, you know? But there's so much about them that makes hope that these things are going to change the course of the disease that we can realistically say, okay, there is uncertainty here. It has to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. This is going to be uncomfortable because we don't know. But you did like a little practice with me. I thought people like in the world would find genuinely helpful is like when faced with uncertainty, which is pretty much life in general, Mm -hmm. and like there's shiny things, but you didn't just like dangle the shiny thing. You were like, okay, you have a very difficult decision to make right now. Like, what day is it? I think it was like February or something. <laughs> and you're like, great. Now mark the date. What decision can we make that we would be okay with? Like that, looking back, that we made the best choice based on what we knew at the time. Exactly. Because you can get stuck in Foreverland yes. in the future, and then with your someday omniscient self, just think, man, I really should have done this. Exactly. Or, I should have done that. Yeah, looking back on a thing. And doing the mea culpa is is awful. It was patients and families that taught me to mark the day that we make the best decision we know how to make because I was a witness over and over again 
to the agony of the why didn't we do this other thing. Yeah. And so I'm insistent on it now. I will pull out my phone, show the time and the date, and say, yeah. we're going to remember this. And I'll tell them that I am hoping, absolutely hoping for the best. But if this doesn't go the way yeah. that we hope it goes, yeah. I am going to remind you of this day. Yeah. And then we'll pause and begin making decisions for the next step. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have to live with our choices. Yeah. And I think also just in our culture, and especially the way medicine is described, like as unlimited possibility. Mm-hmm. And then you're in the in a series of I mean, you're in like a terrible choose your own adventure. Like yeah. page 46 is sudden death. <laughs> but page 52, the bridge yeah. crosses over the trolls and gets you to the next yeah. part. Yeah, that's the – so that's where um, – and I still have a pretty steep learning curve and probably always will on this, this, this next kind of phase, which is the vine that – you know, we've been going. We've been going from you know one intervention vine to the next intervention vine to the next intervention vine, trying to bridge to the future because medicine's changing rapidly enough these days that the idea of just get me to the next thing is realistic. That yeah. is realistic. <laughs> um, but yeah. the thing is, is that it takes. It does take time to develop new things, to find new ideas, to test them, to get them approved, to go through all these sorts of things. It does. Meanwhile, life clips on. So when someone, you know, has sort of grabbed on to the next vine and they find themselves just kind of hanging on it and it's not, they're not swinging anymore. And they're like, well, what do I do now? It's very difficult you know, to say, well, you can you can either, you know, keep your grip on that vine or, or you can let go. Yeah. And that feels different. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know that my expertise is um, I've just one expertise and that's the prosperity gospel and the everything happens for a reason um, people who I've come to truly enjoy mm-hmm. in this last season. So when people run out of choices or they're trying to explain the ones they had, I mean, I found that um, you end up having to say pretty spiritual things to people, I imagine, when they're trying to make sense of their circumstances. What's your alternative to the everything happens for a reason? Well, I don't do the everything happens for a reason because I I just no longer get it. I just I don't get it. I, yeah. I you know, back in in 1940, we cured zero percent of children with ALL, and now we're pushing 80 or 90 percent. And that's not because God suddenly got interested in children with leukemia. Yeah, you know, and so I just don't know what to make of it when someone says that everything happens for a reason. I don't even know how to conceive of a God who inflicts cancer for a reason. Yeah. Uh, I I don't get it anymore. Now, I have plenty of families who who don't agree with me, and I I don't push my position at all because for me, I I just am living in an I don't know. I don't know. You know, I raised the white flag on that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But there are enough people who 
do believe that everything happens for a reason. Maybe they're right. I don't know. You do I'm say s- some like pretty comforting things, though. I think in the okay. Terrible. Well, you can you could you could tell you what there. You know, it's kind of improv, so it happens in a moment. <laughs> um, I don't take anything away from people. I will tell you that. Yeah. Well, in the really tough times, what kind of what kind of true things still feel true? Well, it depends on the person. Um, when I walk into the room, they're going to have to help me understand what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't know the particulars of what their worldview is, of what they're going, if they don't tell me, I, and I don't, I don't have a starting point. I don't have a one-size-fits-all kind all of right, thing. All right, then fine. You know, but, fine, Mr. Agnostic. What would you say to me? You know my situation. I thought I was going to have to pretty, re- pretty recently. Yeah, that went bad. Um, I was ready to – I didn't know what – I didn't know what. I didn't know what I was going to say. I don't know if I can go here or not. Well, so what we are referring to is like just a couple weeks ago, I got another series of uh, bad test results. And Ray came to my house. And me and my husband and Ray sat right after I had thrown my four-year-old's Lego-themed birthday party and was trying not to be too worried that that was my last time doing it. Balloons everywhere. And then we like took out all the scans and had a tough conversation. So let's pretend that we didn't actually figure out that it wasn't nearly as bad as it seemed like it was going to be. What would you have said to me? Now, Kate, (laughs) when I walked into your house, I don't know quite how to put this. Um, So I am very bad at doing difficult conversations via email. I am terrible at doing difficult conversations via text. The only way that I know how to do them is is physical proximity yeah. of some sort, even if it's the telephone. Yeah. Something where I can hear the blood in your voice and and know when you're becoming sad or distressed yeah or when you laugh you know completely inappropriately which (laughs) you frequently do not true um and so when i walked into your house i did not have a thing in my head that i was going to say to you i trusted that what needed to come would come but that the way that it would come would be in you and me meeting each other and talking and that we would feel the thing. I'll tell you, if you are talking about a thing that, especially if you're talking about dying, Mm -hmm. you're literally talking about a thing that no one in the room has ever experienced, that no one you know has ever experienced. Even if you know a lot of people who have had near-death experiences, by definition, a (laughs) near-death experience is not death. Yeah. And so there's a kind of humility that needs to be there, first of all, a recognition that we're talking about a thing that we don't know about. We don't know what it is. But, But here it is. 
And so, well, we have to yeah. keep like doing the stuff. contours around it. It yeah. is weird, though, because, like, for something that hasn't been seen, terrible things, like, we're talking about as having, like, weight or shape or... Mm-hmm. But, like, when you come in a room, now, like, in my life, almost all the terrible rooms. Like, <laughs> 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 <I> basically, <laughs> every worst moment, I look up, and you mm. are there. Um, <laughs> the other part that plays, though, is, like, that it doesn't mean something to be a witness, Mm-hmm. And your ability to reflect back this the scope of what this thing and this event means. Mm-hmm. So when I've been afraid of dying or not wanting to ask questions because I don't mm-hmm. want it to upset people, so I ask mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, it's just Ray. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be mad at me. Um, I do think part of that gift of like, Let's see what this thing is. Let's see what happens when we have this, when we co-experience this thing we don't know how to describe. Yes. I think part of that, at least to me, is like the power of not just of presence, but of, of like true witness mm-hmm. and to have been seen, I think, in the worst. I mean, like people say that um, – to their spouse, right, when they get married and then they have witnesses. Like, I think for these terrible moments, like, one of the great gifts and joys is that, like, in the worst moments of my life, you have been a witness. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep you around Please for that do. reason. I really appreciate this. Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me. Uh, this meant a lot to me to you have too. this conversation. The moment I got diagnosed, it felt like I had been pushed to the very edge of a cliff and I could see all the way down. It was absolutely terrifying. I could feel my toes curling over the edge, feel the upward draft, and I just stood there, teetering. Not sure which way this whole thing would push me. Very few people know what that feels like. And I think even fewer probably want to hang around with them. Ray can't live on the edge of the cliff with me. Because at the end of the day, he has to go home and make dinner and live his life. But he made a decision to scoot up a little closer and to peer over the side with me. He can't really make it better. I mean, he can't invent a new drug or patch up my body or promise nothing bad will ever happen again. But he can decide that being there for other people, allowing tragedy to take up space in his life, is not just his job as a doctor. It's his job as a human being. And thank God for that. So stick with me. Coming up next, just in time for Valentine's Day, a beautiful discussion with Lucy Kalanithi that's all about love. Her late husband, Paul Kalanithi, was the author of When Breath Becomes Air, and he loved her at first sight. Listen with someone you love. (laughs) 
Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. This podcast is produced by Beverly Abel and Allison Jones. Sound engineering is by Dennis Foley with assistance from Ivan Panaruski. Special thanks to Amanda Height and the Be the Change Revolution team and Random House. And we'd love to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, please post a review on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on Facebook, always, Instagram, often, and Twitter, every day, at Kate Bowler. Let's chat. Until next time, this is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. Mm-hmm.